Welcome to Brazilian Politics, the podcast where three political analysts talk about all things Brazilian politics. This week, we will discuss the electoral scenario two weeks from the runoff round, including expectations for polls and strategies from the candidates, Bolsonaro's economic agenda, and Bolsonaro's portrayals in the international press and geopolitical context. Welcome to Brazilian Politics. I'm Michael Lopez, and I'm joined by my colleagues Lucas and Thiago Aragão. How are you guys doing? Good morning, guys. Good morning, everyone. All right. So we're two weeks out from the runoff round, and we have a heavy favorite, Jair Bolsonaro. The next Ibope poll, which will be released tonight, Monday night, uh, the Datafolha poll that will be released on Wednesday and the Data Poder poll that will be released on Thursday will likely reinforce Bolsonaro's favoritism in the runoff round. This morning, a BTG poll was released that shows Bolsonaro with 51% of valid votes and Fernando Haddad with 39% of valid votes. Another important fact presented by the BTG poll is that Bolsonaro's rejection rating is considerably lower than Haddad's. Bolsonaro has 38% rejection, while Haddad has 53% rejection. So it seems that the race is, at this point, Bolsonaro's to lose. Given this scenario, what should we expect from both campaigns in the next two weeks? Hi, Michael. This is Lucas. I think in the next two weeks, we will have uh, Bolsonaro laying low uh, trying to avoid mistakes, which at this point seems to be the only variable that would eventually lead, uh, make him lose the race, a series of, of very serious mistakes from now until the end of the election, while Adaji will try to, to, to test his, his messages and, and what he has under his belt, which is uh, 25, around 25, 30% of a PT preference in Brazil, and the, the, the positive social and economic results, especially in the first PT era. Uh, Adaj, in the last weeks, he has been trying to have a more moderate approach. According to the press, he has been speaking to several economists that are more liberal-minded in an attempt to bring the market closer to him. And he has uh, presented himself in the last interviews and even in his a logo in his brand as uh, someone different from the PT. It's funny that in the last week or so, his uh, ad has taken off the traditional red color of the PT and brought uh, yellow and green colored to his logo, to his to his uh, brand in an attempt to break the walls of the PT vote and attract the non-PT vote. We said this weeks ago here in our uh, podcast that the biggest challenge of the PT was attracting the non-PT vote. Uh, bridges have been burned with this electorate, and it's extremely hard at this point for him to bring them back to his side. Yeah, not only has uh, has Fernando Haddad just switched the colors from his logo, uh, moving to a more generic uh, green and yellow, but uh, he also removed uh, former President Lula, uh, from his logo. And I believe this Monday is one of the first Mondays in this campaign that he hasn't traveled to Curitiba to personally speak uh, with Lula to get guidance on uh, the next couple weeks of the campaign. This is true, Michael. And uh, one thing that perhaps Adad and his team couldn't understand 
is that this positioning, whether it's more to the left or with more moderate, doesn't have the impact expected upon the, the undecided voters. The main problem there is that the narrative of Adad is the one that uh, fights with its own the, the own past of the party uh, linked with the car wash operation. So it is very hard for Adad to change this game. Bolsonaro, indeed, uh, he is very near winning the presidency of Brazil. And uh, we're going to see after many, many years in a consolidated fashion, the PT uh, doing a strong opposition, a fierce opposition to this Bolsonaro administration in the beginning of next year. You know, Lucas, I, I have a question for you. Something we've seen uh, in, in this campaign is that Fernando Haddad seems very, very willing um, and adamant in debating uh, Jair Bolsonaro. I think the PT campaign sees an opportunity in engaging in these debates. And we have three debates scheduled for this week. Uh, uh, Bolsonaro's appearance at the debates is, is still a question mark, whether for medical or for uh, strategic reasons. And uh, I, I want to know from you, Lucas, uh, what what could Haddad achieve in uh, debating Jair Bolsonaro in a nationally televised debate? Well, Michael, the, the truth is, is that Jair Bolsonaro has had... Uh, uh, the last couple of months, several attacks directed against him, especially in, in areas uh, regarding uh, women's rights and, and rights of, of LGBT rights, uh, black rights in Brazil. This obviously is a, a, a point in the Bolsonaro's campaign that can be attacked because of past issues uh, and past comments made by the PSL candidate. I think at this moment, this this urge of Haddad to debate with with Bolsonaro is because they see this as one of the only potential things that could represent a new fact in the campaign. In a debate, more often than not, the 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 candidate who is winning does not lose a lot of points from a debate. In the last presidential elections, we've seen shifts in in, in more in the second and third place rather than in the first place. Uh, but that said, it's, I'd say, the, the, the last hope of uh, uh, candidate Haddad to debate Bolsonaro and to expect uh, Bolsonaro to perform poorly in the debates and to create a momentum towards Haddad. I wouldn't say that it's, there is uh, something extremely objective in what uh, Haddad is proposing and debating on him, but there is kind of like a last hope. Haddad knows that uh, Bolsonaro needs to commit mistakes. He will only commit mistakes if he's provoked. He will not. The, the, I think the the likeliest scenario of, of of Bolsonaro making mistakes would come if he were to be provoked in a very in a very uh, efficient fashion by Haddad. So Haddad sees the debates as a chance to provoke Bolsonaro and have him uh, cross the line in some of these issues because if he's alone. Uh, speaking only in conducted interviews through his Twitter, the chances of a mistake are very slim. But in a debate, being provoked, being thrown curveballs, there is always a chance, independent on who is the candidate. So I think Haddad is holding to this hope of a debate where he performs really well, Bolsonaro performs really poorly, and this can create a new fact, a momentum, a black swan towards uh, the PT candidate. 
You know, I think uh, I think the the Haddad campaign has has its work cut out for it. Uh, Bolsonaro and his campaign have even admitted to this strategic absence to the to the debates. I think what Lucas is saying is is understood from a strategic standpoint from Bolsonaro's campaign. Um, and the fact of the matter is that with with a lead that is this consolidated and with support from voters who are uh, very united and, and presenting very solid support for Jair Bolsonaro, something that was confirmed in the BTG poll released uh, this morning, uh, we are starting to get to a point of uh, a lot of speculation about a future Bolsonaro government. And one of the most important issues uh, for the financial markets and international investors are the economic policies or the agenda of reforms that would be presented by the, the Bolsonaro campaign. Uh, Chago, I'd like to hear a little bit about Bolsonaro's uh, stance on pension reform and also a bit more broadly uh, about what Paulo Guedes represents for the Bolsonaro campaign. Michael, uh, Bolsonaro is beginning to form his team. Of course, there's a lot of speculation of who will be part of this team. But one thing is for sure that Paulo Guedes will be a super minister that he he will have in this administration, combining uh, the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Planning and Budget, and potentially the area of foreign uh, foreign commerce uh, at the Ministry of Industry and Foreign Commerce. His stance towards uh, the pension reform is is dubious and has been uh, a target for several criticisms over the past months. Why, on one hand, Paulo Guedes have made it very clear the necessary approaches to have a reform, uh, pension reform. He, on the other hand, he he mentioned that the current reform that was tailored by the Temer administration under the guidance of Enrique Meirelles is not the one that he would be planning to be using. This was not perceived well by the market because they understand the complexity of approving a reform like that. So if you already have a reform that it's considered good and good enough to be ready to be sent to the parliament to be voted. And this the, the, the new minister does not want to go that way and wants to create a new one that perhaps is even better on paper, but with harder chances of being approved. The interpretation is that Bolsonaro's administration might lose some valuable time in this process. The names that have been brought up for for the team, particularly the economic team, are individuals that are very respected in the in the financial market, all with very extensive experience in the private sector, but we're yet to find a core group of individuals with extensive experience in the public sector. And this is another reason of a question mark in regards to uh, the timing that this uh, reform could be, not only the reform, but several economic measures could be uh, tailored and presented uh, to the parliament. So what we see is that the Bolsonaro himself uh, avoids, as Lucas mentioned, and as you mentioned a while ago, he avoids opening up his game. And basically, his currently winning strategy is remaining silent and as silent as he can. And so, so he's precise view towards the pension reform is still slightly obscure, while Paulo Guedes' view is perhaps optimistic and too optimistic in the eyes of, of some in the private sector, particularly the ones that I speak in New York. 
So this is absolutely something that we have to see how will be this management and how will be the approach from the Ministry of Finance towards the Parliament in that point. I just add that the market's timing is very different from a, a timing of an election. We've, if we look back to the recent past, there has been several times where candidates uh, just speak a little bit too deeply about their proposals and are often criticized electorally uh, because it's uh, maybe something that is not so popular. A pension reform, although absolutely necessary for the country, is not popular in Brazil. And, and to speak about it in detail could create exactly what Haddad needs, a message at this point to attack the Bolsonaro campaign. Uh, also, the, the pension reform of, of Teme, although the market sees it with positive eyes, and although Gedge sees it with positive eyes, it's even possible that Bolsonaro himself uh, in the backstages might see it as something interesting for the country. It's very hard for them to, to say at this point that they agree with, given that Temer is such an unpopular president, you know, to say anything positive about Temer at this point, although uh, could be true, it is electorally something that could be used against you. That's a that's a good point. And, and I think what, what we're alluding to here is that the Bolsonaro campaign is walking a, a very uh, thin line between showing that they're serious uh, about economic reform, specifically about pension reform. I think uh, pension reform, uh, despite uh, being unpopular with with uh, voters, is uh, something that is almost uh, unanimously considered necessary by uh, economic analysts uh, and and financial markets in Brazil, as well as uh, international investors. Um, but he also doesn't want to say too much and, and to cause a ripple in the campaign or, or have to backtrack on some of these issues. Um, I will note, though, that Bolsonaro um, has recently uh, gone into a little more detail uh, about pension reform in an interview that he gave to Bandeirantes on, on October 10th. Uh, Bolsonaro suggested a, an initial target of 61 years uh, of age for retirement. Um, and then uh, a couple of days later, he said that it would be 62. Um, but I think it, it, this gives us an idea that uh, at least he's thinking about it. And um, he's thinking of maybe a, a softer, more transitional uh, pension reform, which I don't think would be ideal for the market. But it's something that uh, becomes... Uh, necessary due to the political reality of uh, having a governing coalition and having to have things approved in Congress. And I think this gives us a good uh, transition to my next question, which is about governability in, in Congress in a future uh, Bolsonaro government. I think one of Bolsonaro's first key battles after taking office will take place on February 1st, uh, with the elections for the presidency of the lower house and the Senate. Uh, we have Rodrigo Maia who, uh, from the, the, the Dane running as a candidate for re-election for president of the lower house. Um, and then we have uh, Bolsonaro, who is basing his support on these uh, thematic uh, caucuses um, for the rural caucus, uh, security, and uh, evangelical uh, caucuses in, in Congress as well. Um, what, what I want to know is, what will this race for the presidency of the lower house and the Senate look like in a government that is less concerned with parties and more concerned with support from specific sectors? 
Look, uh, governability is a risk. It's been a risk for Cardozo, who has lost some important votes in his time. It was an issue for Lula, uh, who in the height of his success and popularity lost the vote for a creation of a tax, the, the infamous CPMF. It was definitely a challenge for, for Juma, and it was a challenge for Temer, who has been president of the House and knows the, 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 how the, the Congress works uh, maybe as much as anyone in Brazil. So definitely governability is an issue for Bolsonaro. Can he achieve it? Definitely. Can he f have risks? Definitely. I think that he will create a new level of negotiation with Congress. As you said, the parties in Brazil are so fragmented and they have lost power because parties have become centers of interests mainly for the owners of the party. Uh, to make it more clear to our listener, uh, normally in, in strong parties, there is a thesis around the party in terms of ideology. And if you are a congressman and you are against that thesis and you vote against that thesis, you can suffer sanctions that can go from, from a, a public mentioning against your vote until being kicked out of the party, which this has happened many times in Brazil. The thing is, the parties in Brazil, the owners of the parties in Brazil, they are willing to have unloyal members uh, in their in their in their bench in their group of of, of congressmen, uh, because they would rather have unloyal members, but a group of members that is high enough, uh, than not having enough members in your in your party, because all they they wish is to keep uh, their 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 number uh, high, so that in the next electoral cycle they can get reelected. Because every electoral cycle, the number of seats that a party has in Congress determines the amount of money that you receive from public finance and the TV time which you can negotiate with other parties. So I think with this rationale, President uh, Adagi or even or President Bolsonaro, they will negotiate further with the, with the caucuses. And I think this is a thesis that will be even more strong under a Bolsonaro presidency. He will negotiate uh, more with the caucuses than with the benches. This is a very fine-tuning to achieve governability, but I think that there is a chance. Regarding the presidency of the House and the Senate, I think that this will be the great task, and uh, president, the next president cannot commit the mistake that Dilma committed in, 2000 and, and, in the beginning of 2015 when she did not support the presidency in the house of Eduardo Cunha, who had the immense support of her coalition and decided to launch a name of her own, and she lost. And when you lose the presidency of the house, it's a signal to your group that you are weak. So I think it's going to be the big, the first big challenge for Bolsonaro or Haddad, uh, but most likely Bolsonaro. And I think it will give us the, the glimpse, if he's ready or not, to achieve governability, at least in the first year. Lucas, and I also would like to add to that, that, you know, aside from the challenge of basically having uh, to operate in a new model that uh, supersedes the, the partisan politics that we've seen in Brazil and the managing of these partisan coalitions in, in a, an eventual uh, Bolsonaro government, um, what, we're, what we are likely to see is, I think, uh, 
we will see them act quickly. I think these elections uh, have shown that the the Brazilian population and Brazilian voters uh, want change. Uh, the results of the first round of the elections were were very uh, positive for for Bolsonaro. It's the beginning of a political wave, and I think we can expect Bolsonaro to to be very active in the traditional honeymoon period. Uh, that an elected president has with Congress, uh, with the added difficulty of of trying to work in a different framework as far as political negotiation is concerned. So th- this will be very interesting to see. My final question uh, for today's podcast concerns the international press and the views that the international press has on Bolsonaro, and how do we reconcile that image with uh, multiple uh, references to to Hitler and, and Goebbels, and uh, how do we reconcile that with such strong domestic support and such strong support from the market for the same candidate? Michael, of course, when when you have anyone uh, alive in the world today compared to Hitler and to Goebbels, there is a, a huge doses of exaggeration in there. But we see the foreign press engaged in that and as an attempt to illustrate their dissatisfaction, although from a distance, towards the potential candidacy, uh, the potential election of uh, candidate Bolsonaro. And the press is not hiding this dissatisfaction towards his, his potential victory. And the reason is precisely what he had not only spoken in the past, uh, when he he put forward very controversial arguments regarding authoritarianism, the the Brazilian uh, military uh, years. Uh, So so all all this creates uh, an atmosphere that no matter what he says right now, of course there will be a grand and important part of of the press that will position strongly against him. At the same time, we have to understand and see that, uh, for example, in newspapers like Le Monde, uh, among others in Europe and in the U.S., there is uh, a more kind approach towards Lula, despite the crimes that he committed and and the car wash operation that happened in Brazil that uh, uh, diverted billions and billions of dollars of the taxpayer money. So what we've seen, of course, it, it, it's this preference, it's this political positioning, but there must be a movement of reconciliation after election or else any analysis and any news regarding Brazil will be tainted with a strong personal opinion, which is not something bad, but it's something that he has uh, to be placed carefully uh, within the opinion sections, for example. So one thing that we see is that of course, uh, uh, Bolsonaro has had some very, very controversial and appalling remarks, but he's definitely not a fascist, not even because of the technical interpretation of what being a, a fascist means. And what I see is that uh, the behavior of Bolsonaro as a president, and since we were talking about governability right before, is a behavior that will be much more dictated by his relationship with the parliament than necessarily by the controversial points and ideas that he has said throughout his career. Uh, 
So the Bolsonaro that we're more likely to see in his administration is a Bolsonaro that will constantly try to adapt to a reality that the parliament imposes instead of doing the other way around. And this is something that if the press, particularly the foreign press, does not want to reposition themselves and to criticize strongly, but in terms of the programs and the and the public policies presented by Bolsonaro, there will be a major misconception for the individual who's reading about Brazil from abroad. I just add that the risks under a Bolsonaro presidency exist, but there are risks regarding governability, risks regarding a clash of mindsets within the presidency, or even a risk of, of producing Uh, public policies that don't effectively work in our economy, not in terms of democracy. I think Brazil has institutions. Uh, 79% of Brazilians uh, believe in democracy. We don't have the convergence in a very multipolar society for any authoritarian behavior, including press, including the big businessmen, including the the mentality of, of, of the decision-making power in Brazil. So I don't see a, a risk to democracy whatsoever, but there are risks given that we are about to witness a, a group of, of, of people in, in power that we don't know how they uh, will achieve what they're saying that they will. So the, the risk is governability, although it's possible to, 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 to achieve it without any major problems. But democracy-wise, I think Brazil is, is, is safe and sound. Thank you, Lucas. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think uh, Bolsonaro, uh, as, as president of Brazil, uh, if he is elected in the runoff round, will also be inserted into a, an international context of, of uncertainty um, and uh, political instability uh, and uh, a seeming lack of leadership Uh, in international relations, which I think will be interesting uh, to monitor. Uh, this concludes our Brazilian politics podcast for this week. Thank you to our listeners and uh, invite you to tune in next week for more on Brazilian politics. Thank you. Thank you.